Monday, February 10th at 6.30 p.m. at the Clinton Street Theater in Portland. Big Money Agenda explores the effects of money in politics, Citizens United, as well as solutions to the issues of money and politics that's preventing real change. There will also be a discussion after the film. Again, that's the screening of the documentary film, Big Money Agenda, on Sunday, February 10th at 6.30 p.m. at the Clinton Street Theater, 2522 Southeast Clinton Street in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. KBOO Community Radio is proud to co-sponsor the Real Music Film Festival through February 16th at the Witzel Auditorium, 1219 Southwest Park Avenue in Portland. On Friday, February 8th, the Real Music Festival will screen documentary Industrial Accident, the story of Wax Tracks Records. Wax Tracks Records was founded in 1975, the beloved record shop and label that has been based in Chicago since 1978. This documentary by Julian Nash details the rise, temporary fall, and legacy of Wax Tracks. Again, that's the Real Music Film Festival, showing Industrial Accident, the story of Wax Tracks Records, on Friday, February 8th at 7 p.m. at the Witzel Auditorium, 1219 Southwest Park Avenue in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. Check this out. Hard Knock Radio coming at you. Bringing the noise. This is Chuck D, Public Enemy Number 1. News, views, and hip-hop. This is Sister Soldier on Hard Knock Radio. Listen closely. Que pasa, raza? This is Deuce Eclipse, the Oi Joaquin, your parte chino. Check it out. Listening to Hard Knock Radio. Hey, this is Patrice Russian. And whenever I'm in the Bay Area and I need good information and great radio, it's all about Hard Knock Radio. Davey D, Hard Knock Radio, hanging out with you this afternoon. Over the weekend, a lot of attention was focused on the city of Atlanta. Uh, that is a place where Hard Knock Radio is aired. So big shout out to all our folks in the ATL. But it was big doings as the Super Bowl was in town. A lot of people were paying attention to the music scene. And then just hours before the Super Bowl, the world was shocked to get the news that 21 Savage, whose real name is Shia Ben Abraham Joseph, had been arrested by ICE and that he was placed in deportation proceedings. Now, for many people who aren't familiar with 21 Savage, the artist, that may seem like what's the big deal, but for people who are familiar with his music, and he is very popular, many people had no idea that his immigration status was something that would be questioned. Um, For as long as you can remember, he has been a main fixture in the Atlantic uh, in the Atlanta music scene people know him he's referenced all the time he talks about growing up in the area etc etc but now we come to find out that according to ICE he had overstayed his visa and he was in violation of the law that caught many people off guard and he became the subject of a lot of ridicule because the way it sounds is that here's this uh, millionaire rapper somebody who's on the Grammys and on TV and all these other things, and that he was an irresponsible adult. Now we come to find out that he is like almost 2 million kids that are in the United States, that he was brought here as a child, um, someone who was maybe 11 years old. So when his visa expired, it expired when he was 12. And that opens up this whole conversation that we're going to have this afternoon about immigration, um, your citizenship status, and in particular how it pertains to those of African descent. Oftentimes, the face of the undocumented person is Latina or Latino, but there's also 
a serious concern as it pertains to those of African descent. And joining us in the studio, we have somebody who is no stranger to this and, in fact, is in pretty similar situation to 21 Savage. Her name is Laji uh, Salazar. She is no stranger to our airwaves. And also on the phone line with us is Nana Jumfrey, who is the CEO of African Americans, African, uh, what is it, Immigration Alliance, right? I'm the executive director of the Black Alliance for Just Immigration. Black Alliance for Just Immigration. I I couldn't get African American out my name. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Let me start off with you, Nana. Um, I mentioned that the face of the immigrant, the undocumented, um, is brown. But there's a lot of black folks that are caught up um, in that situation and also being deported all over. So can you kind of give us some perspective? Yes, absolutely. There are a lot of black immigrants who are being caught up. Black immigrants find themselves often at the intersection of criminalization, right? Just as black folks being racially profiled and targeted by the criminal sanction system and this immigration enforcement system that uh, deports black immigrants at higher rates than other ethnicities. So we may not have the same numbers as, for example, brown folks, but in, given the numbers that we have, our deportation rates are higher. And so, and we also have a, a high rate of folks who are undocumented. Again, they may not be dreamers. They may not qualify to be dreamers because of the other factors that affect us as black folks. But we have at least 600,000 undocumented black immigrants in this country. I'm at about 4.2 million immigrants, black immigrants total in this country. So we are here and we are definitely being targeted both by the law enforcement, criminal sanction system, the POPO, but also by ICE as well. You know, we're here in the West Coast, and so obviously, you know, for a lot of people, and I've heard people who are pretty insensitive, well, well, ain't no black folks being deported. This ain't even our issue. Why are we even talking about that? But can you break this down? Being from New York, I think I'm a little more familiar because I've seen in the crosshair Jamaicans and Haitians, um, but how have you seen this, you know, overall and you know, it doesn't really change from city to city and state to state. It's pretty consistent. We just issued Black Alliance for Just Immigration, Baji for short. We just issued a State of Black Immigrant California report this past September 2018. And when you looked at deportations, particularly looking at deportations of people with criminal convictions, And the criminal convictions can be, you know, something light. It doesn't have to be robbery, burglary, or rape. But when you look at criminal convictions, black immigrants get deported just off of one criminal conviction at a much higher rate than anyone else. And so 76% of black immigrants with a prior conviction are deported. Now, when you compare that, for example, with the Asian community, And that's, of course, a large swath of of people, right, different nations. But their percentage of getting deported based on prior convictions is 38%. I'm going to get it even more narrow. When you talk about black folks from the Caribbean, their percentage of uh, deportations based upon a prior conviction, just can be just one prior conviction, is 83%. So look at those numbers. For Asians, it's 38%. For folks from the Caribbean alone, it's 83%. And so you're seeing now a large pushback or pushback from various countries. You see that my mother country of Ghana has pushed back, um, leading the United States to issue a visa sanction. They're not going to give as many visas, they say, because Ghana is not just wholesaling accepting deportees. Ghana saying, hey, we want to know that you're not just profiling people, picking them up, and sending them, you know, home. We want to understand really what's happening as you are separating families through this detention and deportation process. And so when you go to the detention centers and you you, know, you, you see that there are black immigrants there, many of them from East Africa, many of them from Haiti, you know, Haiti actually just that one country um, is so 
highly affected. And when you look at things like the reversal of temporary protected status for places like Haiti, Honduras, where you have the Gatafuna people, um, and Sudan, Liberia, uh, Sierra Leone, and then they're you know eyeing Somalia, you realize that really you're talking about hundreds of thousands of black folks that they are determined to deport in this targeted kind of way. That's the voice of Nana Joffrey from Black Alliances, uh, Black Immigration Alliance, Baji, as you said, right? Black Alliance for Just Immigration. David, I will make you write it down. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, unfortunately, <laughs> I don't have a pen where I'm standing at, so I'm going to ask you to repeat it again. And so it ain't my fault, you know. It's okay. Uh, <laughs> I want to bring in um, uh, Laji Salazar. Uh, Laji, uh, the immediate response when they heard about uh, 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 21 Savage, the artist, was well why didn't he just apply and why didn't he just you know uh you know get his visa taken care of and all that and it seemed to me that there wasn't a real understanding of how arduous a process that is and what the limitations are etc cetera, etc cetera. um when i first heard the case immediately i thought of you because i said well he could have been a daca you know applicant but that presents a whole lot of complications and it isn't immediately open. So can you explain the type of scenarios that folks like yourself who are undocumented have gone through, which may mirror somebody like uh, 21 Savage, who was brought here to this country when he was 11 years old? Um, sure. So one of the first things that I do want to say um, is there's a multitude of conversations that are happening. One, um, I really want to push back around the narrative of uh, brought here th and stayed through no fault of their own. Our parents are not criminals. They made a conscious decision to move to a different country in hopes of creating a better future. And so that, that idea of through no fault our, of our own, it again, continually puts the blame on our parents and it's disruptive in our community. Um, the other thing is that um, one of my first thoughts when I heard the situation is if someone with money and obviously enough money to hire a bomb ass lawyer, right? cannot sort out their immigration situation, it kind of highlights how complicated the immigration system is um, in general, and again, very specifically how racialized it is for um, black immigrants, right? Um, for many of us, um, as you said, he would not be eligible for the DACA program because he has a prior conviction, although uh, Legida's report says that it's been his record was expunged. There's a lot of complications around there. But, for example, you, you know, I have a... Let, let's just be clear, too, and, and uh, Nana, you can also jump in. When you say with a drug conviction, and I don't know all the details about drug convictions, but I do know from having spent quite a bit of time in the South that... Um, if you're caught with a joint in San Francisco, California, that is one situation where it's like you may get a citation. If you're caught with a joint in, in Georgia or you're caught with a joint in um, Texas, and we just saw this recently with the rap artist, um, uh, gosh, I'm, I'm trying to remember, one half of the dog pound um, there was corrupting and his partner, right? He just, yeah, no, not exhibit the other one. I'm going to remember his name in a minute. But anyway, he got caught with something that would be a slap on the wrist in San Francisco, but he's looking at a felony, you know, charge. And so when you hear these words like uh, criminal and overstayed the visa, you know, in my mind, it makes you think, oh, he was an irresponsible adult, not somebody who was 11 years old. When you hear drug conviction, you think, was he moving keys? But if you're talking about Louisiana and Atlanta and something, it may have been that he just had a joint in the car, which, you know, when, when you label it a certain way, connotes a whole bunch of other things. But his record was expunged as a result. So that means he wasn't moving keys. <laughs> Well, I mean, yes. And as Nana has already mentioned, um, black folks are criminalized in a very distinct way. So when you are dealing at this intersection where uh, black folks are distinctly targeted and criminalized by police, you're more subject to having a criminal record. And, um, for example, for DACA, if you have a single felony conviction, you are not eligible for the program. Um, and uh, if you have, I, I, I can't tell you the exact number, but several uh, misdemeanors, you're not eligible for the program. I have a younger uh, sibling who's not eligible for the program. and So misdemeanor could be driving without a license. Exactly. My missing sibling. school. My sibling has a, several driving without a license tickets because at the time they couldn't get a license because they're undocumented. And so now they're not eligible for DACA. Um, so it, it um, there's 
there's this uh, idea that you have to live this perfect life in order to be eligible for even some sort of reprieve from um, deportation. Um, and and again, as Nana has mentioned, that is exponentially more complicated when you are black, when you are a black male and you're criminalized in a very distinct way. Let me just say also, just to add, 21 does have a U visa application in, and that application didn't just go in, it's been in earlier. So, and a U visa application is for people who are victims of crime, and you have to be able to show that really this, you know, you were severely harmed in some way by that um, crime that was committed against you. And so, and I think that that's another interesting piece that needs to be figured in here because his application is in, which means that the Department of Homeland Security is aware that he has an application as a victim of crime to be protected by the United States. And instead of being protected, he's being thrown into and held in a cage um, in a detention center in Georgia, which are renowned, their detention centers, renowned for being places of great human rights violations. So I just want to add that layer that, you know, DACA is not the only way that people are able to, what they call, adjust their status, but that even, you know, whatever way you use, it doesn't happen tomorrow, that it takes a, a while for that to occur. And it would seem that while you are waiting for relief, that you should not be thrown into a detention center separated from your family and forced to face deportation when you're making that kind of request. A couple of things with respect to that. So, you know, he filed this, you know, a couple of years ago. So he just didn't do this overnight. And and as you said, it's a long, arduous process. But the other thing is that um, 21 Savage has three kids and they were all born here. And there's been a lot of talk about separating the parents from the kids and all that. Um, we we, we kind of heard about it a little bit when Obama was in office, where we heard that, you know, the parents were in these detention centers. But now we're seeing it much more in an egregious way with folks at the door at the border having their kids taken. And then now we're hearing that it's almost impossible to return them because it's such an arduous situation for our government. But in this case, 21 Savage is, is dealing with that now, too, because he's in a detention center now separated from his kids, and they want to send him outside the country. So can anybody speak to that? And I'll start off with you, Nana, and then go to uh, Laji. Well, absolutely. That's one of the concerns that we have. And it, again, goes back to this umbrella of racial justice that we share with African Americans who also find themselves separated from their families, whether that be in the through the criminal sanction system and imprisonment, being sent to jail, whether that be through the foster care system. But we know that the separation of black folks from their children is a historical reality in this country. And you don't get exempted from experiencing that reality because you're a black immigrant. That is, you know, part of and parcel of the history of what it means to be black in this country. And so, yes, we're definitely lifting up that concern that he would now be and is now actually separated from his own children and from um, his family and friends and community here. Right. And I mentioned that because you said the detention center in in Georgia is notorious for being. Um, really a, high, a human rights violating type of place where they deny bail, where they, you know, they will hasten deportations. It's a, it's a brutal place. Definitely. Absolutely. And in fact, which we can mention later or give people the information on later, but we have a petition that Black Lives Matter, Black Alliance for Just Immigration, and, and Docu Black and Define America um, have sponsored through Color of Change, in which we're demanding the release of Shea, also known as 21 Savage, um, so that he can be reunited with his children, with his family, and with his community. Anything you wanted to add re- with respect to this in terms of um, just this possibility or this reality of people being separated from families? I mean, that's a reality that um, you and your siblings constantly live with. And, and, you know, I don't think there's a full appreciation of what that means in terms of your thought process and how you all navigate um, day in and day out, even in a place that is a sanctuary city slash state. 
Um, yes. So for uh, for my family, um, my family's blessed enough that everyone pretty much has a, a status adjustment. I'm the only one that's left that's undocumented. And um, that is everything from when I um, go out at night and people are concerned about me getting pulled over. And there's it's it creates a state of anxiety. And, and again, like one of the things that would be um, one of the things that I always like to say is that I actually don't fear deportation as much as I fear being detained. The reality is that people who will go through deportation proceedings sometimes get held in detention centers for an undetermined amount of time uh, with limited access to both resources and your family and your community. And so as scary as deportation sounds, I'm more scared of what that process would look like for me. And some people will sit there for years at a time. Exactly. Before their case is heard. The other thing that we know about 21 Savage, people who know his music, um, you know, they, they would categorize it. Well, you know, his music isn't all that uplifting. He's part of that mumble rap crew. You know, that's how they like to put it if they're not really as tuned in. But when you talk to people in Atlanta, he's been doing a lot of community stuff. He spoke out and he was part of, uh, you know, that movement of artists to speak out about what was going on in Flint. Um, he has spoken out about uh, immigration, and he most recently did a song about that. Um, and people are wondering, because the song that he did, you know, happened within the past couple of weeks, if that may have played a role in suddenly them discovering a man who's been here for, you know, 15, 16 years, who is highly visible, has never hit his immigration status, um, who is suddenly starting to be a community activist if all of a sudden he's on the list of people that may need to be targeted, which is the concern that I had because somebody like you and your sisters have uh, been, you know, um, known for speaking out. And, you know, does that put you all in the crosshairs? And I'll start with you, Lodgy. I mean, it is it is a known fact that Immigration and Customs does target people who do political activism. To have the audacity to fight for your community to have basic human rights is a threat to ICE, and they have strategically targeted people who do activism and community organizing. So, no, I don't think that they um, they that is uh, some weird coincidence. I think that it's a very strategic move, and I think that it's uh, it it's it's a pattern that we've been seeing as of uh, as of late. And even just the narrative, because the narrative came out as, you know, I come back again, this narrative that had this criminalization lens on top of it that had people think he's irresponsible, he's wrong, until you go, oh, I didn't know he was 11 years old. I didn't, you know, all the backstory didn't come out. So it seems like that in addition to targeting, it part of the process was ICE being in front of the narrative and putting it out there as to why. Yeah, uh, it it did seem as though ICE did a, a slander campaign. I mean, even some of the statements that they released is he was claiming that he was from Atlanta. He arrived when he was 11. He's from Atlanta. As someone who is undocumented but has my entire life rooted in Oakland, I am from Oakland, and that's complicated, being undocumented, right? But I am from Oakland, and this is where I'm from. Right, nobody can't be like, well, you know, really, she's from Mexico, but you ain't never been there. I mean, yeah, I was born <laughs> well, there. But, 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 yeah, but you yeah, know what I mean. But I'm from Oakland, and I will fight anyone. Like, we'll go, we'll go to town on this like um but yeah it's it's one of those things that it felt like a smear campaign where it's it 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 was from my perspective a very strategic move to undermine whatever um support that he could have received from the black community as like oh he's capitalizing on a black culture and that sort of thing even though he arrived as a child and he's from atlanta right anything you would add to anything that you would add to this about you know when you're speaking out and the targets that you know that you become um, it almost seems like, you know, to me, you have to put this in the context of um, the suppression of dissent that seems to be happening all around. It might be the folks who are fighting for justice in Standing Rock who found themselves looking at felonies and looking at, you know, 10 and 12 year sentences. It may be the uh, uh, FBI surveilling and targeting members of uh, Black Lives Matter. It may be the type of uh, scrutiny and then uh, repression that people in the Muslim community were were fi- finding themselves on. It seems like now if you get somebody who's quote-unquote from the hood who's waking up and starting to speak out that that they become a part of that continuum. Uh, how, you know, is, am I wrong in looking at and connecting the dots that way, Nana? I don't think so. I think that I think that that's what we're supposed to do until proven otherwise. Right now, 
we don't know and we, we haven't been given all of the details with respect to the detention of Shea or 21 Savage. But we know, for example, that it was like ICE and the police were there like, you know, Jollof Rice and Red Plantain, you know, um, this right there, lockstep together. I, that seems weird to me as a movement attorney, um, as well as a leader of a black immigrant organization. It sounds like, I mean, you don't often get people all of a sudden picked up for overstaying. So it seems like somebody called somebody and that there was obviously some kind of surveillance that was happening. All of those things seem to be pretty apparent, even though, you know, admittedly, I don't know all the details and can't say for a fact that that's what has occurred. But I think going back to this INS conversation, or ICE, excuse me, conversation, they certainly put out a narrative um, and they made sure to have that narrative. It's almost like they had their own media campaign, you know, kind of put together their strategy, put together before um, they even did the detention, before they even grabbed um, 21. And when you to get more information, we do have some information on the petition that gives a little bit more about what happened with him and what his position is. You can go to free 21 savage.org again it's free 21 the number free 21 savage.org and that will lead you to the petition we're hoping that people will share that and really push for his release because as you know uh, folks can end up waiting to get a bail hearing for weeks sometimes months and he will just be there during that time period and so it's for us it's really important that he be released as soon as possible and we're really you know putting pulling out all the stops trying to press for that to happen let me ask you um one last question as we get ready to wrap up obviously we're talking about 21 savage um who i mean obviously he's a celebrity he's a popular artist and I don't want people listening to, you know, kind of be like, well, damn, you know, my cousin Michael's in jail and nobody's talking about him. But obviously, you know, by looking at the situation with 21 Savage and seeing how this repression can come fast, quick, in a hurry with somebody who is that visible, uh, that active, and and, and arguably may have money to fight this, um, that it gives us the opportunity to shine a light on all those other cases with unnamed folks, et cetera, et cetera. So can you help us connect that dot, um, you know, to the to the larger picture and, you know, and highlight some of the work that you're doing above and beyond the 21 Savage thing? Because obviously your organization has been around um, probably long before he hit the scene and will be here long after. Right. Thank you so much for that. I mean, we're 13 years at this point strong and um, we have offices and, and the organizers that are in Miami that are in Atlanta in fact the, the person in Atlanta, Levette Herbal Thompson is working now trying to can help folks get together and, and do some things on this piece, folks in LA um, folks in Oakland and obviously our headquarters in New York um, and so the reason that we're connected up with this case is not because we have some personal relationship with 21 Savage right obviously we care about him as a black migrant but it is because it really highlights that intersection between the historic uh, criminalization of blackness itself in this country and the place where it intersects with the also historic uh, detention and deportation um, and othering of non-white immigrants in this country. And so we see in this uh, sort of a testament to what we've been talking about in terms of criminalization. You know, we've been talking about creating freedom cities. Baji's been talking, doing work on the other side of the border, talking to Eritreans, Cameroonians, Haitians, um, folks from Guinea, folks from Ghana, folks from Nigeria, um, folks from different parts of the Caribbean who find themselves on the other side of the border and who are not getting talked about and not receiving the resources that they need, let alone our folks that are in detention centers in our communities here all over the country where we're pushing to talk about and, and to advocate on behalf of our black migrant community, but also, as we said, to really unite ourselves, unite the diaspora with African-Americans because this racial injustice, anti-blackness, white supremacy, and all of these other ills affect us all. We don't get exempted because we have an accent or a particular kind of name. And so, you know, 
whether it's research, whether it's work on policy, whether it is uh, doing our Know Your Rights workshops, our diasporic dialogues, our Freedom Cities, you know, Swipe, uh, Swipe It Forward is a, a, a project that Baji led. All of that is work that we're doing to assist our people, black folks in general, African-American and immigrant alike. And how do we get a hold of your organization? Uh, give the website, say the name and number. Yes, get a hold of the organization through going to our website, Baji.org. We are also on Twitter. Spell, spell, spell Baji for everybody and give the acronym the full name again. The Black Alliance for Just Immigration, and it's B-A-J-I. So for our um, website, it's dot org. For our Twitter, it's BajiTweet, B-A-J-I, Tweet. For our Instagram, it's InstaBaji, Insta, B-A-J-I. Um, and we're also found on Facebook. And if folks want to reach me in particular, they can reach me by email at Nana Y. so N-A-N-A-Y, at Well, there you have it. And I'll just close out and Roger, you get the last word here. Um, you know, some of this gets complicated because, you know, folks just didn't show up on these shores, you know, from Nigeria or Cameroon or Haiti or any of these places. Um, like I said, if you're back east, you know, Haitians have been here several generations and may still be dealing with, you know, various uh, uh, degrees of immigration status. But now, you know, folks are marrying into families. So you now have folks who, you know, quote unquote, have citizenship status, but they mate or they partner or what have you doesn't. And so you have that added complication of what does it mean? You know, in case of 21 Savage, you know, what does it mean when they can go? Well, you can go and your kids can stay in that sort of situation. And, you know, and you have a partner that may be rooted here. So it's all kind of things that we need to think about um, that is just not um uh, undocumented folks existing in a vacuum. They are now a part of the fabric of our lives in many ways. Uh, last comment from you, Laji. Yeah, I think it's super important to really just highlight the concept of family separation being a major issue um, currently for the immigrant community. And also, I think it's super important for us to, as immigrants, to really highlight and make central to the conversation the experience of black immigrants because as uh, mentioned several times uh, uh, during this interview, they are criminalized in a very distinct and oppressive way. So it's super important that they are central to the conversation. Real talk. We appreciate it. Nana, thank you. Uh, Laji, thank you. And uh, hopefully people take what you heard this afternoon to heart and follow up. We're going to take a break on Hard Knock Radio. We'll be right back. Yeah, yeah.
chance and she done gave you around with these thighs. make memes i'm on the money routine i don't want smoke i want cream i don't want no more comparisons this is a marathon and i'm aware i've been playing a bet from a lack of promotions i never was one for the bragging and boasting i guess i was hoping the music would speak for itself but the people want everything else okay no problem i show up on every one album you know what the outcome will be i'm betting a thousand it's got to the point that these rappers don't even like rapping with me come on 21 savages hit me and told me he sent me a spot on a new record he got he called it a lot i open my book and i jot paper takashi they want to rap i picture him inside a cell on a cot flattening on how he made it to the top wondering if it was worth it or not i pray for my kill because they have been shot just want you to know that you got it my though i never met you i know that you're special when that the lord bless you don't doubt it my new then it's my junior stay solid my new i'm on a tangent not how i planned it i had some fans that hopped in a bandit when they thought that i wasn't gonna pan out i got a plan they say the success is the greater revenge tell all your friends call on a mission some in the spot is the greatest that did it before it all ends how much money you got a lot how many problems you got a lot how many people done doubted a lot left you out to rot a lot how many pray that you flock a lot how many lawyers you got a lot how many times you got shot a lot how many you shot a lot how many times did you ride a lot how many done died a lot how many times did you cheat a lot how many times did you lie a lot how many times did she leave a lot how many times did she cry a lot how many chances she done gave you around with these thighs a lot David D. Hard Knock Radio, hanging out with you this afternoon. Joining us on the phone line is somebody who always keeps his finger on the pulse and his ears to the ground. It is Uncle Bobby, a.k.a. Cephas Johnson. He is the uncle of Oscar Grant. And uh, we like to check in with him to stay on top of some of the happenings that are occurring, at least in this state, around the issue of police terrorism. Um, As you know, earlier this year, there were a couple of bills that were introduced to the Senate, the California Senate. One of them dealt with how police would engage people around lethal force, and the other one was going to weaken the Policeman's Bill of Rights. In other words, make it open so that we can understand what sort of uh, records policemen have so that we don't have repeat offenders on the police force. It looked like these bills were flying through, but now the police unions have stepped up and they're trying to derail them, and we wanted to find out how that's looking and what that's happening. So, Uncle Bobby, welcome to the show, and enlighten our audience about the progress of these particular bills. Again, thank you, David D., for having me on your show. Uh, And to the listeners, yes. Last year we had some success with a couple of bills, SB 1421, which actually took effect on January 1st, requires the police departments to release records of police officers who have either been involved in offense of mob shooting or seriously injured someone. Also uh, included in that was if they've been involved in sexual assaults or have or acted dishonestly, you know, falsifying reports. Um, according to the bill and the law now, these police agencies are required to release this information to the Public Records Request Act made by either individuals, family members, organizations, news stations, you name it. We have a right to this information. Um, and also, you know, I, I need to say to AB 748, which is the audio video um, release, so now the agencies are required to release videos within 45 days. You know, of course, they come up with various aspects to why they may not want to, but the reality is that it is a state law now that requires them to release the videos. So we have a uh, Public Records Request Act enforced now, as well as the auto video release, which are really transparency laws that give families the opportunity to deal with the pain of losing a loved one. I mean, it really helps a family begin to identify um, how to move forward from that loss. 
right. And I think, past. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Dave. Yeah, I, I think just people listening would be like, well, that seems pretty straightforward. But um, for a long time, it wasn't. In other words, you had individuals who had lost families to police officers where the name wasn't released. And, exactly. you know, the rules were they didn't have to release them. Or to, to, to bring it more up to date, you just had a situation in Vallejo where a police officer went and assaulted somebody for filming um, him, right. um, you know, giving a ticket. Now, you know, in the past, we might not have known that person's name. We might not have known that he had, you know, marks against his record in the past. But now with these new laws, we are now able to know, like, wait a second, this guy did the same thing last year and the year before. He has a twin brother that does it. All these sorts of things come to light, and then that helps us hold people accountable. Right. I mean, these records have been kept confidential for over 40 years. And so when a family encounters a murder of their loved one, they're denied the right to um, know even the officer's name, you know, or even get the details of what happened. And they suffer for many and many years. And so uh, definitely before January 1st of 2019, uh, we had no rights to those inform that information or those records. And so the pain was just excruciating. And some families actually, uh, it destroyed families, I should say, more or less than um, helped them. You know, and it would make more common sense that if an act of uh, misconduct by a police officer did occur, what is the secrecy in keeping that hidden? Because as we saw in Vallejo, uh, with the San Bernardino, uh, um, San Mateo police officer that had those sexual charges put against him for sexually advancing on females, um, is a pattern of practice of bad officers that can be identified and corrected before someone is either killed, misused, or sexually assaulted. That's real talk. Now, I had mentioned that there's a lot of pushback on this, and um, the fight is not completely over. You all and uh, will be up in Sacramento uh, tomorrow, Wednesday. Can you explain what's happening and what, what, what the next stage of this battle is? Right. So, um, you know, as I stated, these two previous bills are really transparency, uh, account uh, transparency bills that can lead to accountability. But we have no real accountability measures in place. So even though we may identify bad officers, if we don't have nothing in place that can hold them criminally liable or hold them accountable for the wrongs they commit, then that you know, the problem is going to continue to go. So tomorrow we're actually going to introduce our use of force bill legislation that we're going to champion through this year in hopes to um, win that battle to have a piece of legislation on force that now can hold officers liable or criminal for their wrongful acts. Uh, that's going to be happening tomorrow in Sacramento. Dr. Weber will actually be releasing the bill. Who's uh, Dr. The Weber? Public. Who's Dr. Weber? Dr. Weber is a uh, San Diego assemblywoman uh, down there in San Diego. She actually introduced the bill last year, which was titled AB 931, the Use of Force Bill. Uh, we don't have a number yet. We actually will receive the number tonight. And I think the name is actually going to change. I'm not sure quite what the name is going to be, but once it's introduced tomorrow, we'll have all the details. Uh, and then we're going to definitely lead the state of California support to push hard to get this accountability measure in place and become law, because that is the only way we're ever going to be able to really hold officers accountable the wrongs that they commit. Now, will this bill be able to bypass the DA? Because oftentimes what we found is that DAs are often, um, you know, uh, recipients of uh, monies from the sheriff and police departments when they run for election. Um, they work closely by default, and many are very reluctant um, to press any sort of charges. We've seen that in L.A. where you had almost 2,000 complaints and not one charge or not one move to discipline any officers from the DA. We saw that in uh, in uh, Santa Rosa up there in, uh, in uh, Sonoma County with the DA there. So will this uh, kind of remove them from that equation once an officer does something wrong? 
Right. It, I'm not going to say it's going to remove them, but I think it forces them to reconsider the um, decision of whether they should file or not. For example, San Mateo County DA, who is reopening the criminal investigation into that police officer in Burlingame that had those sexual charges or, or sexual complaints filed against him, has forced him, I mean, to his knowledge, he would, so let me just get a quick history. So it was an officer in Burlingame, uh, what's his name, David something, but anyway, he sexually assaulted three different women, but one of the last women filed a major complaint and was able to get him fired. Okay, so, but the DA didn't file charges against him for sexual assault. He just let him get fired. But now that these other women came forward, the DA has now to reconsider filing a criminal investigation into this officer for creating this sexual environment in his workplace. And so um, I think when we look at it, with the transparency laws that we have, looking at the, the pattern of practice, forces the DA to make more of a, a decision based on his history, because the public now has a right to know. Of course, they're going to fight to keep us from knowing that. But if we got information that this DA refused to file a complaint or a criminal charge against a sexual predator on the police force, right, then that DA would become the target of the complaint because he's allowing this type of character to continue to exist on the force. Hmm. So I think they're going to protect themselves and look at the whole totality of the issue and then make a determination whether they file or not. Well, that makes a lot of sense there. Um, what time will this be happening up in Sacramento? Uh, 10 o'clock tomorrow. 10 o'clock tomorrow. Uncle Bobby, we appreciate you taking time out. I know there was another uh, situation that you all were dealing with. Um, as we get ready to close out, you want to let the public know? Oh, most definitely. So, as you know, this is the 10-year anniversary of Oscar Grant, and we finally were able to successfully get the city council and everybody to agree that the street over there at BART will be named Oscar Grant Way. On February the 14th, it's open to the community to come and voice their opinion concerning the street rename or the street naming of Oscar Grant Way. So we are asking all our community that believe that BART as a form of atonement can also inform them how important the naming of Oscar Grant Way is uh, to the community. I think we're going to have a rally protest at 8 o'clock in the morning at the Bark Board meeting, and then the meeting starts at 9 o'clock. Come early because we expect it to be full, and we're hoping that people make signs that say, show love to Oscar Grant because it is Valentine's Day. But uh, definitely the community support will be powerful in expressing just how important the renaming of that street is and inviting everyone to see the mural that will take place unveiling on March the 23rd. And hopefully the street name will be unveiled that same day, March the 23rd. But right now we just got to show up, speak, and let Bart know, uh, because they're still fighting, that the community is in support of the street being named Oscar Grant Way. So, again, as we close out, uh, tomorrow at 10 a.m. up in Sacramento at the Capitol will be the uh, bill. Um, the lethal force bill that will hold police accountable. That's going to be unveiled with Dr. Weber out of San Diego. You will be up there along with a number of other lawmakers in support. On February 14th at 8 o'clock uh, there and, and before the BART board meeting, this will be um, dealing with the issue of uh, renaming the street around Fruitvale Station. So we appreciate you taking time out, Uncle Bobby. Thank you so much, and we will stay in touch. Uh, thank you again for having me, David Dean. We're going to take a break on Hard Knock Radio. We'll be right back.
Hard Knock Radio. News, views, and hip hop. Hard Knock Radio. News, views, and hip hop. My name is Valerie Trout. I'm here with you. News, views, and hip hop. Hard Knock Radio. Community Radio is proud to co-sponsor the Real Music Film Festival through February 16th at the Witzel Auditorium, 1219 Southwest Park Avenue in Portland. On Friday, February 8th, the Real Music Festival will screen documentary Industrial Accident, the story of Wax Tracks Records. Wax Tracks Records was founded in 1975, the beloved record shop and label that has been based in Chicago since 1978. This documentary by Julian Nash details the rise, temporary fall, and legacy of Wax Tracks. Again, that's the Real Music Film Festival, showing Industrial Accident, the story of Wax Tracks Records, on Friday, February 8th at 7 p.m. at the Witzel Auditorium, 1219 Southwest Park Avenue in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. Kboo Community Radio is proud to co-sponsor La Segua, running February 7th to March 2nd at the Malagro Theater in Portland. La Segua is a Central American cautionary folktale of a young, beautiful woman whom philandering men encounter on their way back home. Her beauty decays into a horror that drives the men mad. The play tells the story of a beautiful woman who was haunted by the specter of La Segua and takes a hard look at Costa Rican values, including ambition, hypocrisy, and follows themes of machismo, vanity, and narcissism. Again, that's La Segua, running February 7th to March 2nd on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday nights at 7.30 and Sundays at 2 p.m. at the Milagro Theater, 525 Southeast Stark Street in Portland. 
More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. Hey, what is going on out there? KBOO Portland, 90.7 FM here in Portland, Oregon, 100.7, oh no, 104.3 FM, Philomath, Corvallis, Albany, and 91.9 FM, Hood River, Columbia Gorge. I'm always nostalgic for those old frequencies we used to have, I guess. Uh, you uh, are about to listen to, uh, wherever you're listening, it could be at www.kboo.fm. If you're somewhere out in the world, uh, wherever you are listening from, welcome to another edition of Drinking from Puddles. Hello, I am Brandon. Tonight's uh, Drinking from Puddles program is made possible by KBOO member listeners and support from True West presenting Dark Star Orchestra February 8th and 9th at the Roseland Theater. Tickets and more information online at truewestpresents.com. Hey, 